Um, thanks, Ilya. Thanks for the opportunity to read and think carefully about your paper. Um, thanks to the organizers of the conference for inviting me. Um, I'm really glad to be here. I have learned a ton from the sessions and the papers already. I expect that to continue until, um, until the conference ends. Um, I, I, I say that on the understanding that many people in the room um, may regard me as an alchemist who has somehow wandered into a conference on chemistry. Um, and, um, and, 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 and so I, I, I appreciate the indulgence that that represents. Um, and I suppose I also have to think who is the chemist and who the alchemist is a question that I don't presently plan to adjudicate. Because the question for today is about Ilya's paper. And I intend to take Ilya's paper on its own terms, right? That is to say, I, I, not to make it an occasion for doubts that I have about originalism, either as a theory of authority or as a method of practice, but to, but to take it you know, where, where it is. Um, Ilya has a general argument against federal power to regulate immigration based on its original meaning. Um, and the, it's not, pre and to me, it's not presently the point, or not necessarily a point, whether the paper establishes um, uh, any legal point by its historical investigation. The historical claim is worth making on its own. And then there's a separate question about uh, whether it legally controls. It's, it's worth asking whether the paper has original meaning right. Um, and I read the paper as making historical claims of the kind that would stand up to scrutiny by expert historians. Right? They say, uh, originalists are sometimes charged with storytelling rather than historical investigation. And I don't think that's what Ilya is doing here. I think it stands, Ilya's argument stands or falls on the soundness of its, of its historical account. I, I should also say, I, I am not and do not pretend to be a history, excuse me, an expert on the history of immigration in the early republic, nor did I propose to become one in order to read this paper. That would take a lot of time. Um, and I'm committed to the view that scholars who write about constitutional history should not too quickly opine on matters in which they have not put in a lot of time right, to, to understand what the history is. So my critique is at the level of things that are visible to me as a constitutional lawyer who has some training in how to treat historical sources and is conversant with the founding at a general level, but doesn't pretend to expertise in the domain of, um, of immigration uh, particularly. So Ilya's argument, as I read it, has two big steps. Um, the first is to show that a general immigration power does not reside in any of the enumerated powers of Congress taken individually. And the second is to show, again, as a matter of original meanings, that the Congress has no inherent power. Right? Um, and I'll take them in that order. My conclusion on each will not be that Ilya is wrong. He, he, he may be right. My conclusion on each will be that I don't think the paper demonstrates what it sets out to demonstrate on the point, that, 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 that more is required. Um, to start with the specific enumerated powers, I'm not going to be comprehensive about all the powers that Ilya talks about. I agree with his thoughts about some of the powers, like the Law of Nations clause and so on and so forth. I'm just going to say something about the arguments about the commerce power and the necessary and proper power, and then something about the paper's treatment of two objections that run against those claims, the one based on the non-interpretation clause and one about the Alien Friends Act. Um, so, Ilya says the Commerce Clause won't do. We all know that there is a debate 
about the best way to understand the original meaning of the Commerce Clause, right? It, we could personify the debate by talking about Randy and about Jack Balkan. We could we could give like predecessor genealogies on each side. The, the, the arguments are, are, are thick and many here. And I don't propose to arbitrate among them here. Um, if you are on board with something like Randy's story or with any one of a number of other stories that are not exactly Randy's stories but that tend in that direction, then what Ilya says here is likely to make intuitive sense to you. But I want to raise some questions about how this particular paper supports the claim. Um, the sources the paper presents is bearing on this question, not the question of the Alien Friends Act, but on the commerce power itself, uh, begin in 1823. Um, and so there's, there aren't so many of them. The earliest is from 1823. And so I want to know what probative value does the reading of those sources beginning in 1823 add to what has already been argued from other people who've been over the commerce grounds with sources closer to the time of the founding. On necessary and proper, there's, as we all know, a deep dispute about how to read that clause, about whether necessary and proper names one prong or two, and, and so forth. And I don't mean to air it all. I do think the paper moves too quickly over this ground. Right, so for example, the paper notes that Hamilton had an expansive view of the power, and it says that even Hamilton saw necessity and propriety as two independent requirements. And the evidence is a sentence from Federalist 33, in which Hamilton writes of the need, quote, to, 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 to quote, judge the necessity and propriety of the laws. And I don't see why that proves the proposition. If Hamilton had written something like to judge of the necessity and also separately of the propriety of the laws, we'd be somewhere, right? But to be precise, where we'd be is um, sitting with a demonstration that a man who hand wrote 51 essays in six months and published them without editing and who wrote in those essays all manner of things that he thought up on the fly or might not actually have believed on consideration but would be helpful to selling to the public uh, on a particular occasion spoke that way. Um, but Hamilton's actual language doesn't indicate that even on this occasion, Hamilton was committed to the idea that the words named two different things. He just repeats the Constitution's wording, changing adjective forms to noun forms, as the syntax of the sentence required. So I've always doubted that when the president swears to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, that he's swearing to do three different things. And I don't think that um, if the president were to say, um, well, if I were to say, I doubt that the president is adequately preserving, protecting, and defending the Constitution, reasonable listeners would conclude that I now did think he was doing three different things. Um, I'm just adapting the text to fit my sentence. Um, I will uh, omit picking bones with the great power claim, with due respect to both Chief Justice Roberts and to Will. I'm not totally persuaded here, but we don't have to rehearse everything. But let's talk a little bit more about the non-importation clause in the Alien Friends Act. Um, exactly as the problem with the non-importation clause is exactly as Ilya states it, right? That is to say, one might read the rule to imply a background understanding that Congress has the power to prohibit migration, and that migration might include immigration. And Ilya it seeks to dissolve the problem by pointing out that by characterizing the word migration as euphemism intended to avoid direct mention of slavery. So I'm totally with him about how the clause comes to be. I say, I, I, yes, I'm with you. It's, um, it's a euphemism intended uh, to serve the purpose of not naming slavery. But on an original public meaning model, 
the fact that the convention was just intending to duck slavery m might not matter. It doesn't dispose of the question of the original meaning of the clause. One of the habits of writing in euphemism, especially if it's not a euphemism that's a well-established term of art in your community of discourse for many years, is that a reasonable reader might hold you responsible for what you actually said. And the clause actually speaks of migration. Um, uh, I'll stop there. Um, the paper also quotes Madison um, saying that the people who represented the non-importation clause as covering voluntary migration were distorting the Constitution's real meaning. Um, but I don't know why that statement by Madison is more probative on the point than the statements of the people who he was rebutting. That is to say, the people, his contemporaries, who say, this thing lets Congress regulate migration. Um, unless we think Madison missed the mark completely, the fact that he chose to make the argument tells us that there were people with a different interpretation, and indeed that he thought that that interpretation offered to the public was likely enough to seem sensible and persuasive to the public that he had to put up an argument against it. Um, I, I don't know what the best resolution of the dispute between Madison and his opponents is, but I think all we know based on this source is that there was a divergence of views on the matter among the people who confronted the newly written Constitution. So then there's the Alien Friends Act, which gave the president the power to remove aliens. And I think Ilya agrees that if this act had been constitutionally valid at the time, it would point to a congressional power to do that thing. Um, so he, what he says instead is the act was, uh, um, it was wrong. It was not constitutional under a correct understanding of original meanings. And the evidence here, as I read it, is the citation of a number of Democratic Republicans who argued that the act was unconstitutional. And to this, I think, well, sure, right? The Democratic Republicans, lots of them, thought that the act was unconstitutional. But the act passed. The act passed in the 1790s because there were lots of people, a legislative majority backed by a president who apparently did think it was constitutional. And then, then there comes the argument that, well, the, the, the Democratic Republicans carry the day, right, eventually. Um, they win in 1800, the Federalists go out of business. Um, and, and I think that's a little too quick. Um, it's a little too quick for, for, for a number of reasons. Um, elections are noisy signals. Um, most people who voted Democratic Republican maybe did so for reasons other than their opposition to these acts. To the extent that it was about these acts, how do I know that it was about the Alien Friends Act in particular and not the Enemies Act or the Sedition Act? Um, even if it was specifically the Alien Friends Act that motivated the vote, were they endorsing the specific theory that the federal government has no power? Or might some of them have thought the federal government has the power? Um, that's not to say that it might be right, just that more needs to be done. The last thing I'll say is, um, I think more needs to be done to make the point that there is no possibility of inherent power. Um, the general argument, there are a number of arguments here. I don't have time to talk about all of them. One thing Ilya says is the original meaning could have included a sense of inherent powers. Why would the Constitution need to enumerate powers that would surely have been on an inherent powers list, like the war power? And here I refer you to Michael McConnell. Right? That is to say, um, one really easy possibility is that, sure, it's inherent in the federal government that it has, for example, war powers. But we've got to specify which feds have it, these feds or those. Um, there are more things uh, 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 to be said here, but I've used my time, and I'll stop.
So I obviously don't have time to respond to every single one of them, but I'll respond to a few. One is on the Commerce Clause. I do, in fact, cite earlier research by others, which does go into material in the 1790s. I felt there's enough of that research. I didn't have to replicate it, but I did also add the theoretical point that the interaction theory of commerce does have the problem of making superfluous many of Congress's other powers, another reason uh, to reject it. Uh, I think the evidence from the 1820s is important because it often does get cited in debates over the original meaning of this. Maybe it shouldn't, but it often does. On necessary and proper, uh, and Hamilton's uh, comment, I actually thought that, you know, Hamilton's comment here in Federalist 33 is actually pretty clear in that uh, he says certain things can't be done under the necessary and proper clause, like overriding state inheritance laws. It's pretty obvious on his interpretation of necessary that such things could be useful or convenient. Therefore, if Hamilton is seen to argue that uh, it still can't be done, the only possible reason is that it's not proper, and he, in fact, uses the word propriety to express that. Now, maybe he really didn't mean it. Maybe that wasn't his carefully considered view, but from an original public meaning perspective, things that he said about this and others said about this at the very time that this was being debated, they're pretty important, even if in some cases might be insincere or might not be the product of as careful thinking as some other things that he said. And by the way, he never, to my, to my knowledge, reversed himself on this question of the separation of necessity and propriety, even though it might have been advantageous for him to do so in some of the other uh, debates that he engaged in later in his uh, career. Uh, on the migration or importation clause, I certainly agree, as I said in my comment in Michael McConnell's paper before, that things that uh, were only said or thought in secret don't necessarily govern the original public meaning. And I think it would be desirable to extend my discussion of this clause to note that this was, in fact, understood in terms of slavery by most people who discussed it. Uh, there were some people who argued the other way, but uh, Madison's comment as a leading proponent of the Constitution is particularly important on this in that usually when we interpret provisions of the Constitution uh, and we think about the original meaning at the time, the statements of supporters that were necessary to win the support to get it passed are seen as more probative than the statements of opponents. And this is a point that is desirable to add to the text and to expand that discussion as well. So it's, you know, it's, it's worthwhile covering that. On a debate over the Alien Friends Act, I certainly do not mean to suggest that just because the election of 1800 was won by the Democratic Republicans that that means that they were right in this debate. It's completely true that these signals are noisy. What I think is more telling, as previous scholars of, like Matthew Lindsay and others have shown, is that over time, and, and, and both at the time of the debate and later, the dominant legal and expert opinion came to converge on the Democratic-Republican view on this. And even in the 1798 debate, as I note in the paper, uh, some of the Federalists who defended the act still didn't defend it on the basis of a general federal power uh, over immigration. Finally, on inherent power, yes, it's probably desirable that I include this point about how listing and enumeration can sometimes mean allocation of powers among the different branches of government, not just uh, limitation of powers, but this only deepens the mystery of why this wasn't enumerated if it was uh, an inherent power because uh, this seems like such an important power that it would actually be desirable to know which branch of government had it. Uh, and uh, the fact that that wasn't enumerated uh, is telling both from a federalism point of view and also from a separation of powers point of view that this would seem to be a major uh, omission if this power was there, yet they didn't bother to specify in any way uh, who had it. 
Uh, so much more could be said about uh, some of these issues, but uh, I know there's a long queue of visa applicants, so I look forward to hearing from them. Thank you.